I like to think I'm not a fanatic. I, I never was interested until I got the assignment. It was more like a job for me. But I guess you can say it's taken over my life, so that might equal fanaticism. Uh, but mostly just because, you know, I was trying to find out the answers to put them in a book that I was reporting. And if the question is, how does it or, or why does it have the staying power of the story, kind of the grip on the imagination? I think it's ultimately because there's a mystery here of how Manson got his followers, you know, who are mostly young, barely teenage or, or just a little older teenage women and men to follow him to such a degree that they would go out and uh, kill absolute strangers just because he told them to. And he was able to program them to do that in under two years, most of them in under a year. So I think that's why if it was just like a murder for money or drugs or some kind of rage, uh, even even of a celebrity like Sharon Tate was and Jay Sebring, um, I don't think it would have the staying power. It's more about the fact that they were killed for no other reason that they were told to. And then because Manson had this fantasy of a race war. Um, so that's actually the official version of, of Helter Skelter that the prosecutor sold in his book in a trial. Uh, and I think that's why it's captured the imagination and, and held it for so long. I think I deconstruct it a bit in my book, and I hope that I've accomplished at least, you know, raising significant questions about what he presented as facts, which I don't believe were facts. Yeah, you ticked off a lot of that. I mean, up to the point where you get into the meat at the final part of the book, you really systematically disprove all the theories that went before and that right. brings you into conflict with Bugliosi, who convicted these people based on those theories. What made you begin to think that these official stories, the legal story, wasn't accurate? I just basically got access first to people who were involved in the case who had actually testified as witnesses for him at the trial. And a bunch of them had never spoken to any reporters before. For several reasons, you know, at the time of the trial, they had been threatened, uh, they were frightened, they didn't want to be associated with, you know, the crimes, the Manson family, whatever. And when I approached them beginning in 1999, um, you know, a lot of them, you know, time had passed and a lot of them were ready to talk or with a little push or a big push for me because I was persistent with a lot. Once they started talking, I started getting answers where they started telling me stuff that didn't jive with what was in Helter Skelter or, or what I knew about the case from the media coverage and the book. And then after I heard that, you know, it's always not, not a good idea to rely on 30-year-old memories, even of principal players. Um, but then I thought, well, let me see if I can corroborate this in documents. So then I started chasing down uh, police reports and original interviews. Um, and I kind of had a couple breakthroughs and got into files, law enforcement files that hadn't been opened before. And in those files, I found out that quite a few of the people who were telling me this shocking information uh, were actually telling me the truth because they had told the police at the same time and then Bugliosi had twisted and changed the story to suit his narrative that he presented at trial, which was a crime. He, he suborned perjury of at least three of his principal witnesses, um, prosecution witnesses, and I'm sure qu quite a few more. 
Why was the government so intent on following the uh, crazed hippie who wanted to start a race war fanaticism and at the same time uh, the media was you know focusing on the uh, the X's and swastikas carved into their faces and the shaving their head and all those sort of whacked out aspects of the case but you you know you you were one said it wasn't really about that it wasn't about how freaked out some hippies were it was something else going on yeah yeah well, I don't know how it's hard to get into the meat of this in a quick interview, but basically what I discovered, and I wasn't aware of this, you probably were if you were following all this information for as long as it sounds like you said you were, that there were these um, government programs that would uh, infiltrate groups that they felt were a threat to the security, national security in the, in the 60s and the 70s. And the CIA had one called Chaos, and uh, the FBI had one called um, COINTELPRO, and they would infiltrate groups and then provoke them to commit crimes or for, for many different reasons. There were several scenarios. They would get them to commit a crime so they could arrest them for the crime. They would also get them to commit violent crimes, including murder against rival groups. For instance, the Black Panthers had um, rivalries with other black nationalist groups. And none of that was discovered until the mid to late 70s. And there were congressional hearings. And what I started discovering was a pattern of Manson being provoked by these mysterious people who would show up in his life and kind of intersect with him for a while and then vanish. And while I don't think I've proven it 99.9%, I believe I've got a pretty good case to be made that Manson was um, being pushed and prodded by people who wanted him to create a kind of uh, image of the hippie, not as the peaceful, you know, uh, flower carrying, pot smoking, nonviolent uh, revolutionary, but rather a very dangerous threat threat to America and, and society. And the murder sure did that, you know, once those crimes happened and, you know, three months later when the family was arrested, and their pictures were on the papers, you know, all over the world. Uh, people were became terrified of hippies and um, LSD and drugs, and you know, allowing their uh, their kids to get involved with communes and leftist groups. Uh, so I, I believe it was partially a propaganda campaign. Uh, I don't know if the intended uh, outcome was the murder of some innocent people, but I do believe that. Uh, you know, things got definitely out of hand, and, and that's what happened. Now, you make a connection to what most people think of as a, a, a really uh, excellent organization, the uh, Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, the first free clinic of its kind in the country, probably, in the 1960s. And uh, there was some, there was a dark side to that clinic, wasn't there? It wasn't as... Uh, as amazing uh, as you as people thought it was, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't the first one to question the motives of the director and 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 what he was doing. I, I mean, at the time, there were people in the hate who uh, raised the question about the the Hate Ashbury Free Medical Clinic and and its purposes. Um, and you know, David Smith, who started it as a basically a free medical service for the teens and kids and just the youth that had invaded the hate in 67 for the so-called summer of love 
on the surface, he said it was just for treatment. It was just to help these kids who were coming down with, you know, venereal diseases, they're becoming victims of violent crimes and also, you know, the drug overdoses and bad reactions to drugs. All these doctors volunteered. He raised all this money to run this clinic off and on. Well, actually, for the first year or two, it got closed a couple times, but it kept running until my book came out. And then it finally closed for good a few months after my book was published. Don't know if I should read anything into that, but it is curious. But uh, at the time, even, um, there were people in the hate who, who believed that it was actually a cover for the government to do uh, research on these kids and on these drugs. And Smith denied that, you know, in two reporters and in speaking engagements. And I found out in the early course of my work that he was lying and he actually was uh, accepting government funding in exchange for sharing information with them and actually doing some of their bidding. And that kind of opened a door into a lot of other stuff because Manson basically became Manson during that summer of, of so-called love when he started going to the clinic on the instruction of his parole officer, who was a researcher there, uh, you know, within about six months, he emerged from the hate as the Charlie Manson that we all are familiar with, you know, the dangerous, wild-eyed guru who, again, could get these kids to follow him and do whatever he told them to do. How did he learn that? You know, was he helped and aided in that? Well, that's kind of some of the questions I raise in my book. Well, I know folks who know his family back in Kentucky and his mother, who is well-known sort of bad egg troublemaker. And and uh, but and people who knew him have told me through second and third hand from people I know who grew up in that part of the country that uh, people were always amazed by Charlie Manson's slick way and his way of slipping through the uh, being a living a criminal life. And, you know, gro- growing up uh, the son of a of a prostitute who was never there and making life on his own. Uh, that uh, he still had this ability to put on a, a jacket and tie and sweet talk a judge and a parole officer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he uh, it wasn't just his, uh, let's say, charm or con man ways. I think he was doing exactly what they wanted him to do. And that's why uh, he, he wasn't arrested for two. I, excuse me. He was arrested a bunch of times from 67 from the time he was released on parole from a seven year prison sentence in California till he was finally picked up in the fall of 69 on the what what became the Tate LaBianca murders. But during those two years or so, he, he was breaking the law incessantly. And if he was arrested, he would be immediately released. Uh, he wouldn't be violated and sent back to prison like every other person out there who was committing the kind of crimes. I mean, including rape, uh, rape of minors, uh, drug possession, possession of um, firearms, including machine guns. And this is somebody who's on federal parole, who's not allowed to be around uh, young girls or weapons. So, uh, yeah, he uh, that's that's a big question that I hope I answered in the book about uh, why he was able to evade getting sent back to prison so many times when he should have been. Right. And you mentioned, for example, his parole officer who suggested he go to the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic with his girlfriends, even though everything he did up to that point was a violation of parole. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, that's, uh, you know, it was a fascinating period. And um, 
David Smith is still alive. I, I, I was hoping that when my book came out, he'd answer some of these questions that he didn't answer when I asked them, but nobody has held him accountable. Maybe you should give him a call and see if he'll do your show and uh, you can bring this stuff up, see what he I says. Will. We might do that. Uh, I, and I just wanted Sidney Gottlieb. I've always, you know, I have wrote a book, co-wrote a book with my buddy Dana Beale, a, a, a yippie, a yippie leader, a, a friend of Abby Hoffman. And uh, it's called the Ibogaine story about a psychedelic drug from Africa called Ibogaine that is used to uh, uh, treat people for addiction. And sure enough, uh, when Howard Lotsoff, who uh, we wrote the book about, sent a letter to the uh, FOIA, to the CIA and different agencies, he got back some of these documents that were signed by Sidney Gottlieb, upon which the CIA called him and said, please return the documents. After his video, photocopying them, he did return the documents, but we published them in our book. This is, it's a self-published book. Um, but uh, uh, so- They didn't I, send the original documents, did they? They, they sent, sent the original to him, and then he the made- CIA did? Yeah, or they sent him documents that, I don't know if they were photocopied, the ones the CIA actually sent to him. I think they might've been the actual documents, and then they were, they said it was sent to him by accident. And he, wow, they were still- he was still classified, and it's in our book, actually. Uh, we, we made a copy of it. It's in the book, and Howard did send it back. He, his lawyer told him he better send it back, but they didn't say he couldn't photocopy it, and that's what he did. Sure. And, uh, and then sent the, the ones they sent him back. They showed that they were uh, that Gottlieb uh, was at the uh, addiction hospital that the federal government runs in Missouri. Lexington. Yeah. Oh, Missouri. Yeah, Lexington, Missouri, and that he was testing Ibogaine on African-American addicts who were being held there for the same purpose, to find out if it actually did interrupt. And they found it's widely used, actually. You can look it up. It's illegal in the U.S., but legal in a lot of places. Widely used by people to uh, get out of addiction. It, it inter They say it, it blocks the, um, the withdrawal. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know Gene Schoenfeld was doing a lot of research into Ibogaine, a couple other hate uh researchers who were connected to the clinic had gone to Africa to look into it. And, right. Yeah. Right, right. Gabon. And uh, so mm -hmm. uh, that's an interesting thing in itself, but that's where we, you know, I, I had known about Gottlieb from Marx's book, but, uh, you know, that actually, uh, that Gottlieb had signed off and was involved in that research was amazing to us because it showed that the government knew that it had that property when they were denying it, you know, back when we were writing that book. Uh, so uh, that said, who was Sidney Gottlieb? In a nutshell, and how did he get into this story? And I guess it relates to this guy, Jolly West. And I know that we don't have a real lot of time, so I just want to say, everybody read this book. It's called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. We're speaking with Tom O'Neill, and he is the author, along with Dan uh, Piepenbring. And uh, we're going to advocate for people to go out and get this book and read about it because it's an incredible story, especially our audience at WBAI loves this kind of thing and wants to know more about it. Can you tell us, just to start wrapping up, who this Sidney Gottlieb is and how you found out about him and what is his connection? Well, he, he was a technical services director for the CIA in the late 40s, early 50s, just when it was really kind of blossoming. And um, he basically ran the MK Ultra program, which was their brainwashing mind control program. Their ultimate objective, among others, was to create uh, programmed assassins, people that they could basically brainwash into getting to kill other people and have no recollection of their brainwashing or, or their control. And uh, the, the way he came into my kind of sphere of 
research was um, when I was in, looking into what was going on at the hate clinic at the time Manson was going there and emerging as this person with the ability to get people to kill for him, just like the CIA wanted. I found out that one of his one of the people who uh, was recruiting uh, research subjects, hippies to quote unquote study was Jolly West. And he was a well-known psychiatrist who um, had gone there for the summer of love to study the phenomenon of LSD and the hate. And he uh, basically was exposed in the mid seventies when John Marks got a hold of documents and shared them with uh, congressional investigators about the MK Ultra program. And at the time, they identified about a half dozen or 10 academics who they said uh, these documents implicated in being involved in this research and, you know, conducting uh, drug and hypnotism experiments on people without their knowledge or, or, or uh, permission. And West was on the front page of the New York Times. At that time, he was at UCLA running the psychiatry department, and he denied having any kind of relationship with the CIA. He said that Sidney Gottlieb had approached him to become a part of this MKUltra project, and he said he wouldn't do it because he didn't think LSD should be used on human beings. And he went to his grave denying any allegation of being a part of this and was never investigated, or at least not publicly. And I found out that he actually not only was a part of it, but he helped create it because he accidentally left a, a bunch of correspondence with Gottlieb beginning in 1952 and 53, where they basically wrote the blueprint for what became the MKUltra project. And he was the one who was at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic uh, at the same time Manson went in there and became exactly what the CIA was trying to basically create in a test tube. Right. And uh, just a, a brief touch, because it was, he played such a major part of it, at least early on, is uh, uh, Reese Whitson, who uh, was the first person to call and say that the bodies, there were bodies in the uh, at the Tate home. Yeah. Well, Reese Whitson was uh, kind of a shady spook, spook character. And when I say spook, I mean somebody who was an undercover federal agent who was one of the people who was manipulating Manson prior to the murders. And I present a, a case to be made that uh, Whitson visited the Tate house after the murders had been committed, but before the police arrived, and um, that he was the person who was one of the people. I've got a couple of other candidates that I'm actually looking into now who was kind of pulling Manson's puppet strings up until the murders occurred. Why did they pick these people, the Tates, the Lobiancas? They always say the Lobiancas was because he owned a, a, a grocery store and might have been hit up by the mafia, and then Manson was a hitman, and he was part of a satanic ring of hitmen working for the mafia, and that uh, you bring up some other ideas that Tate, uh, and even Ed Sanders seems to make this, uh, in, in one of his books, I, I read them all, he uh, he sort of says there was a party and Sirhan Sirhan was in a room talking to Charles Manson. And he said, listen, take that as you wish. He put it in the last chapter of the book. Believe it or not. That's what I think. Yeah. What do you think of all that kind of stuff? I think Ed kind of went off the rails there a little bit with that Sirhan business because I'd already looked into it and looked into it again when he published that, you know, chapter in that last yeah. book of his. 
I'd, I'd love that to be true, um, but he doesn't present any evidence of it. And I'm very careful in my book not to say any of this stuff or, or you know, it has been uh, proven by me. Uh, it's mostly um, circumstantial in my book. Um, I believe that that said that Sirhan was likely a part of, you know, a, a product of the MK Ultra program. And um, I believe that uh, he didn't know where he was when he was in the pantry when Robert Kennedy got got shot and killed. He did raise his gun, a gun and shoot at him. But I believe that he was completely under the control of someone else. I, I've never been able to see that he and uh, Manson had intersected any place. They were never in L.A. at the same time and uh, in the same uh areas but i i'd love to if anybody could come forward with evidence of anything like that i'd love to see it will we ever have a time when rich millionaire movie stars and producers and directors and music moguls will just share their homes like they did in the 60s with ne'er-do-wells like uh, manson and his uh, crazed killer girlfriends <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it's going on a little bit if the you know the girls are pretty and they're picked up on the street and there's a pimp that has to be the middle person. I'm sure that's still going on, but yeah, not to the degree it was going on back then when it was much more of an open door policy here in L.A. Not like Ghislaine Maxwell and uh, yeah. all yeah. those kind of people, right? Very good. And uh, so, what's the la last question? What's the lesson? Is there anything from history we could take away from this and learn from today, or is this just the '60s? Don't trust what you're told. I think this stuff goes on all the time and every decade, and uh, it could still be going on now. Uh, but just question—I mean, it's a cliche, but question authority and question the official record. Right. And how about people like Manson going around and uh, and manipulating people to become killers? I mean, did you find out that that is a, a weaponized product that we have to worry about in our day and age? I mean, it's pretty crazy in a way, but just that it's possibly, you know, possibly a weaponized product that uh, the CIA definitely learned how to do it. The question is, are they doing it still? And how much did they do it in the past? Uh, I, I can't answer that. Uh, it's, you know, that's a hard nut to crack, but uh, hopefully other people are out there doing that kind of research and reporting and, and, and getting answers that I couldn't get. Mm -hmm. Anything you'd like to add for our uh, audience? I miss New York. I lived on Mulberry and Prince for about 15 years, and I want to come back. Some of the earliest LSD MK Ultra safe houses were in the village on, I think, Jane Street over in the West Village in 1964 and 65. So if you went to a party there and something happened that you were never able to explain, maybe you were <laughs> dosed with LSD by uh, CIA agents undercover. Thank you very much. Appreciate your joining us, Tom O'Neill, and we'll definitely plug your book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Thanks, Paul. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.